South Sudan in focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza working on this program, Very Remote. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan and South Sudan this Wednesday, September 28, 2022. A top UN diplomat in South Sudan says intercommunal violence has affected thousands of families in the country. Conflict and climate continue to devastate communities and drive humanitarian needs up, particularly after four consecutive years of flooding have already impacted hundreds of thousands of people across the country this year. And an official with South Sudan's Ministry of Information says access to information remains a major challenge. Sometimes when they say, let me get approval, approval will take time, will take years. And we as journalists, we are put at a deadline where we must submit the stories at a specific time. So for this, this is a challenge. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. UN Special Envoy to South Sudan says intercommunal conflict is fueling cycles of violence across parts of the country, risking lives of thousands of civilians. The head of the United Nations mission to South Sudan, Nicholas Heisum, says tens of thousands of people have been displaced in the Upper Nile State due to clashes in the area. For VOA News, Wake Simon Wood reports from Juba. Intercommunal conflicts have exacerbated the humanitarian situation in the northern parts of the country, displacing thousands of civilians in recent weeks, according to Anmis boss Nicholas Haysom. Intercommunal conflict continues to fuel repeated cycles of violence. These have the potential to erode the gains made towards sustaining peace across South Sudan. Haysom says the most recent fighting between the Espelemai or Ketguang faction and the Aguelek forces in parts of Upper Nile has pushed many civilians into renewed suffering. The army's chief says 14,000 people have been displaced and had to run for their lives to Jongole and Unity States, while others sought refuge at the UN Protection of Civilian Society in Malakal. Haysom says climate change has become another push factor causing growing humanitarian challenges. Conflict and climate continue to devastate communities and drive humanitarian needs up particularly after four consecutive years of flooding, have already impacted hundreds of thousands of people across the country this year. This year, more than two-thirds of South Sudan's population, 8.9 million people, will need humanitarian assistance. But access to people in affected locations remains challenging due to impossible roads, flooded airstrips and insecurity on the waterways. Over the past week, Haysom says conflict between Twitch Ngokadinka has created a new wave of refugees in Warap, Abiye, and in northern Bar el Ghazal. He says since September 23rd, some 3,500 vulnerable people have been displaced to villages in Twitch County. Haysom says it's urgent that the government takes steps to address insecurity in several parts of the country. 
UNMIS is working with the state authorities and humanitarian agencies to support sustainable solutions in Malakar. It is urgent to prevent overcrowding, the outbreak of disease, as well as maintain peace within the communities that live within the UN protection of civilian sites. We also condemn the violence in Mayom, Unity State, and in Rualbet, and most recently Anet in Warup, resulting in casualties in the mass displacement of women, children, and the elderly. Haysom's news conference at the enemy's office in Tomping Juba camps two days after United Nations experts on human rights in South Sudan warned South Sudan's peace process needs urgent attention to prevent intercommunal violence from escalating. Haysom says while the parties to the 2018 peace deal have made considerable efforts in recent months in implementing the agreement, more efforts are required. Yasmin Soka, chairperson of the UN Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan, said in a recent statement that the international community urgently needs to pay more attention to the escalating violence proliferating at a local level all over South Sudan. It is critical donors and member states continue to monitor the peace agreement, security sector reform, and ensure constitutional legislation is posed through before elections, said Soka. Without these steps, she added, we are likely to see millions more South Sudanese displaced or crossing borders creating havoc for neighboring countries and aid agencies. The UN experts say there is need to establish the three institutions defined by the peace deal that were expected to steer transitional justice in the country, the Commission on Truth, Reconciliation and Healing, the Hybrid Court, and the Compensation and Reparation Authority. For VUN News, Amwaki Simon Wudu in Juba. Some journalists and researchers in South Sudan say accessing information from government and private sector remains a major challenge. A South Sudanese official with the Ministry of Information says the country is facing several challenges, including giving access to information. For VOA News, Manyang David Mayar reports from Juba. Journalist Rita Helwa, who works for the online news website Juba Echo, says she has experienced enormous challenges trying to access information as she goes about her work. Sometimes when they say, let me get approval, approval will take time, will take years. And we as journalists, we are put at a deadline where we must submit the stories at a specific time. So for this, this is a challenge. In 2013, the South Sudan government passed the Access to Information Act in hopes that individuals seeking any unclassified information would be able to access it. Majak Daniel Kwan from the Union of Journalists in South Sudan says the country has access to information law only in writing, not in practice. As journalists, we are trying to do our best to make sure that we knock every single door, but at the end of the day, we end up being denied. So we journalists, we feel we are the more deprived by this access. We are not getting right access. There was the other day, one student journalist came to the union to request us to write a letter to media authority to grant her uh, a clearance for her to be able to do a documentary within some markets. She was, yes, given by, by media authority a clearance, but when she came into the market, she was stopped from doing her work. 
Last month, security operatives in Juba arrested Dean Magot, a freelance journalist with the Voice of America, alongside other protesters and detained her for more than a week. Kyrie Naya of the Female Journalist Network says most government officials are afraid to provide information to journalists. Generally, there is a tendency of fear of giving out information. It could be because you are not doing the right thing or because you fear your position. After giving the information, what will happen to your position? We have seen in the past uh, the Ministry of Finance, the minister, he said something today and then the next day he said he was taken out of context. And then later what happened? Another thing, of course, could be um, uh, what the security will do to you after giving information. On November 17, 2015, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO, declared September 28, International Day for Universal Access to Information. Four years later, the UN General Assembly adopted the same date as International Day for Universal Access to Information. Ayaz says the benefits that comes with access to information are many, including promotion of good governance and debunking dangerous rumors that circulate on social media and other platforms. Access to information promotes accountability and transparency. And in the long run, if you actually give access to information, it will promote good governance. Because people will be aware about what you are doing or what your institution is doing. But not giving information to the media is also very costly. We have seen in South Sudan where journalists go to social media and pick fake information or rumors because they cannot access the right information. Moinga Nduru, Commissioner for Access to Information at the National Ministry for Information and Telecommunication, says the commission is not fully functional, adding most government information is not available online due to lack of internet access. Speaking today at an event in Juba, marking Universal Access to Information Day, Nduru said communication officers in most government institutions don't have the skill and knowledge to provide most information to journalists and researchers. Doro says his office is working to help communication officers provide information to those who need it. In South Sudan, we have trained trainers of trainers. These are TOTs to train both public and private information officers to assist the public in accessing information. On the 13th of December, we organized a one-day capacity building workshop on access to information for the chairpersons of commissions, undersecretaries, and executive directors on the mandate of the Information Commission. Despite that workshop, many journalists say access to information remains limited. Nduru says South Sudan Access to Information Commission faces challenges of staffing and internet access. For VOA News, Amanyang David Mayor in Juba. 
From Juba, we move to Uganda, where the World Health Organization says a highly contagious strain of the deadly Ebola virus in Uganda is causing a quick and significant rise in the number of cases and fatalities. For VOA News, Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. Uganda health officials declared an outbreak of Ebola a week ago. Five days later, on September 25th, they confirmed the disease, which was caused by the Sudan virus, has infected 36 people, killing 23. It is the first Ebola disease outbreak caused by the Sudan virus in Uganda since 2012. A vaccine is available to protect adults from becoming infected with the more common Zaire strain of Ebola. However, a similar vaccine does not exist for the Sudan virus. Anna Marie Henao Restrepo is WHO co-lead R&D Blueprint for Epidemics in the Health Emergency Program. She says several possible vaccines are under development. We identified there are three candidate vaccines that have now clinical data, data from humans on safety and immunogenicity that are specifically designed to protect against the Sudan virus and that could be tested in a randomized trial in Uganda if the Ugandan authorities decide to do so. The Ebola virus is spread by contact with an infected patient's blood or bodily fluids. The WHO reports the median age of cases in Uganda is 26. 62% are female and 38% are male. The disease has a high fatality rate of 41%. WHO spokeswoman Carla Drysdale says WHO experts are working with Uganda's experienced Ebola control teams to reinforce diagnosis, treatment, and preventive measures. While there is no vaccine to treat Sudan Ebola virus, other health measures such as swift detection, community engagement, isolation of patients, and early support of care have proven to save lives in similar outbreaks. We must raise awareness in the community that seeking treatment early significantly increases chances of survival. While Uganda is struggling to prevent Ebola from spreading, the Democratic Republic of the Congo Tuesday declared the end of an Ebola outbreak which emerged in North Kivu province six weeks ago. North Kivu, which has a vaccine against the Zaire virus, experienced only one confirmed case of Ebola and no deaths. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, health officials in Sudan say they have recorded cases of monkeypox. Find out why after the break. What do you think? People speak out on important questions. The question today... Who comes first in your life? My sister comes first because she was the one who raised me. She taught me how to do everything, so she'll come first. Definitely God, but I think when talking about people, I think my family and my friends, just people who I've, you know, surrounded myself with. I think the woman that I love, every moment I think about her, every moment, I wish I'm around her because she makes me happy. She gives me a lot of peace. She has a way of helping me to just relax and calm down. 
My mom comes first in my life because she has really done a whole lot for me. And if there's anything, I would really want to do something to Anna here. What do you think? A daily discussion of important questions from VOA. You are listening to South Sudan in focus on the Voice of America. Sudan continues to register new cases of monkeypox in different parts of the country. World Health Organization declared monkeypox outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. Back in July, Laila Hamad Al-Nil is Director of Infectious Disease at Sudan's Federal Ministry of Health. She tells my colleague Nabil Biagio the latest cases of monkeypox were detected in West Darfur State and that her office is working with humanitarian partners to respond to the viral infection. Sudan until now registered 15 cases, 15 confirmed cases. Eight of them are in West Darfur, three in the Darfur State, one in Ketera, one in Central Darfur, one in North Darfur. Um, this is the most, this is all the cases which, uh, and also we have uh, two cases in Khartoum. Of course, the World Health Organization declared uh, monkeypox um, a global emergency in May. Uh, where, where did Sudan uh, get uh, these cases from? Is, is it people coming from neighboring countries or able, what have you been able to establish? Uh, until now, um, all the cases, all the 13, 13, from the 16 cases, 13 cases are from the local uh, people or from, from the Sudanese, local Sudanese who are not traveling from any place outside Sudan or something like that. But we have three cases, uh, the three cases from the Gadar state, uh, these are from the camps in the state. Tenezma and Umrakuba comes and they are among the refugees there. So this is the people who are coming from us. But for the other cases, all of them are, are settling down. The yes, the cases in Umrakuba um, in Al Gadarif, uh, these are among uh, Ethiopian refugees coming from Tigray. Is that correct? Yes. What is the Minister of Health, uh, along with other partners, uh, doing to respond uh, to this outbreak of monkeypox? Uh, first of all, we, we, we have uh, the, about three times per week, we have uh, meetings uh, with the partners. We have coordination with all the partners working in the in the field of or the NGOs partners like WHO, UNICEF, uh, MSF, um, UNHCR, and the other NGOs, other international and national NGOs, and uh, other NGOs working in the uh, different areas in Sudan. There are some. Um, uh, organization like WHO and UNICEF work with them directly in uh, West Darfur and North Darfur. Also, we work with other um, NGOs like uh, MSF and UNHCR, especially UNHCR. With a lot of we are working with them in uh, the camp in Al Gadarif and also in the camp in Qatar um, State. So they are working with us. They are um, doing case management, um, rehabilitation, isolation centers, training for the health care. Also, they sensitize the, uh, the surveillance system in different areas. 
so we can capture different uh, cases as they do with us in the camp. They uh, train the community people so they can do contact tracing among the community and they can capture every case or any suspected case which we can um, which will happen or happened in the community so they can capture them and report them for the That's Laila Hamad Anil, Director of Infectious Disease at Sudan's Federal Ministry of Health. She was speaking with my colleague Nabil Biagio from Khartoum on Tuesday. Kenya's President William Ruto has named his cabinet two weeks after being sworn in as president. Ruto appointed former Deputy Prime Minister Musalia Modavidi as Prime Cabinet Secretary, a new post that is not stipulated in the Kenyan constitution. At the same time, Kenya's Inspector General of Police has written to the president to go on terminal leave because of illness as the Director of Criminal Investigation resigns from his post. Maureen Odiambo reports from Nairobi. It was time for the cabinet secretaries who served in the former president Uhuru Kenyatta's government to leave office. The cabinet held a meeting in State House Nairobi a few hours before Ruto named a new cabinet secretary. Most cabinet secretaries were against a Ruto presidency and only three who served in Kenyatta's administration secured a slot in his cabinet. Ruto appointed former Deputy Prime Minister Musalia Mudavadi to serve as Prime Cabinet Secretary, a position that is not specified in the Kenyan Constitution. He says Musalia will oversee the government projects as well as coordinate national legislative agenda. That office is probably the most senior office after the office of the President and Deputy President. And I have set out functions for that office. He will assist the president and deputy president in the coordination and supervision of government ministries and state departments. He will facilitate interministerial coordination of cross-functional initiatives and programs and of course perform any other functions as I may assign him from time to time. The president had promised to give jobs to those who supported his bid for the presidency and those who lost in the general election were considered as well. Public service, gender and affirmative action, the Honorable Aisha Jumwa Katana, Ministry of Water, Sanitation and Irrigation, the Honorable Alice Mudoni Wahome, Minister for Foreign Affairs and Diaspora Affairs, the Honorable Alfred Mutua. Ruto had a strained relationship with the police bosses when he served as the deputy president in Kenyatta's administration. It is under these conditions that the director of criminal investigation, Judge Kinoti, resigned. Ruto had publicly questioned Kinoti's support for Ruto's opponent, and they just concluded general elections. Inspector General of Police Hilary Mutiambai also went on a terminal leave, citing health issues as Ruto appointed Jafet Kome to replace him. Ruto has since ordered the appointment of an acting director of criminal investigation. I have received communication, Mr. Mutiambai, of his request to proceed on terminal leave uh, because of 
his uh, health situation. I have accepted that Mr. Mutiambai will proceed on terminal leave. I have also received the resignation of the Director General of CID and I have transmitted the same to the National Police Service to proceed with advertising that position. The names of all the 22 cabinet secretaries will now be forwarded to parliament for vetting and approval. Reporting for viewers, I am Moreno Jembo in Nairobi, Kenya. Still in Kenya, Kenyan soldiers will arrive in the Democratic Republic of Congo next week as part of the East African Community Regional Force that will help DRC fight insecurity in North and South Kivu and Ituri provinces. DRC President Felix Shekedi said on Monday that Democratic Republic of Congo is ready to welcome regional troops from Uganda, Kenya, South Sudan and Tanzania to start a planned operation against rebels who have caused civilians untold suffering. Burundian forces have already been deployed in Congo in the province of South Kivu since August 15 under an earlier bilateral arrangement that has since been accommodated in the East African Community concept of operations. But Helen Epstein, an American professor of human rights and public health with a special interest in East Africa and author of Another Fine Mess, America, Uganda and the War on Terror, tells Douglas Mpugwa that the DRC government would be better placed to solve the problem. The involvement, uh, the re-entry of M23 into DR Congo is extremely disturbing. And uh, Rwanda's involvement with that group is also very disturbing. Uh, However, there are also some indications uh, that Uganda may also be supporting M23. And therefore, this new regional force that's being considered, we're just not sure whether it makes sense for countries like Uganda to be involved because we know that Uganda has long had an interest in controlling that part of the region. Particularly already, both Uganda and Rwanda have extensive trading networks in that part of the region because this is where uh, much of the world's uh, gold and the coal tan that powers computers and other natural resources, timber and so on, uh, come from. And Uganda has long been involved in um, exploiting the people and the natural resources of this area. We also know that since Uganda sent its forces into eastern Congo, in, into North Kivu in particular, and Ituri in November 2021, with the expressed aim of battling um, an Islamist group called the ADF, the Allied Democratic Forces, in fact... Uh, the number of attacks and atrocities committed in that region has actually increased, often uh, not far from where the Ugandans are stationed. This is very disturbing, and uh, we don't quite know what the real story is, but just as Rwanda has been recused and not invited to join this regional force, it probably makes sense uh, for Uganda to be excluded from it too because of its longstanding uh, interest in depriving Congolese of their rights. Do you think the rest of the African community force can make a difference given the complexity of this com- conflict? My sense is this is something that I think it's preferable that the Congolese deal with it themselves. 
there are known people who have generals and, and military leaders who are in the Congolese armed forces who are stationed in that region and commanding other troops, their own troops, and they are sanctioned by the international community. They've been committing atrocities. Sometimes those atrocities are actually labeled ADF or M23 atrocities. And I think that in a way, if the Congolese were able to sort out uh, the rot in the system, I have no other way of explaining it, but the rot in their own system in their armed forces, uh, which seem to be colluding with very negative elements uh, in that region and, and essentially in, I, I believe, in these neighboring countries, then they could go a long way towards sorting out their own problems. That's Helen Epstein, an American professor of human rights and public health with a special interest in East Africa and author of Another Fine Mess, America, Uganda and the War on Terror. She was speaking to my colleague Douglas Mpugwa. That's all we prepared for you this Wednesday. Don't forget to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. For world news, go to voanews.com. If you miss this broadcast, go to voanews.com forward slash South Sudan. We now leave you with a Baganda traditional song. I'm your host, John Tanza in Washington. Thanks for taking time to be with us this evening. Remember to join us again tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. I'm not